Uh, I want to thank all of you for being here, and if you're a guest or visitor, I want to encourage you to uh, take out the card in front of you and fill it out and let us know about your visit here. We'd love to know how we can serve you, and I want to ask the ushers to come forward and take the offering. Um, I've had a lot of people uh, ask me about our trip to Israel. We had a fantastic time. I I'm, I'm, took a while to recover from a little of the jet lag issues because it was a long trip back. But we had, a, we had a tremendous time. In fact, I've had so many people ask me about this that we tentatively have another trip planned for 18 months from now, October of 2020. So we're, we're pretty excited about that. I want to invite you to turn in your Bible to John 18, and we're going to look at John 18 and 19 today. And uh, I want to talk about the downside of seeking acceptance. And hopefully we get the PowerPoint switched over. Um, I want to begin with a thought experiment. And the thought experiment is this. Just imagine for a second that uh, you see a little newborn child just moments old. The doctor looks her over to make sure that she's got all of her requisite fingers and toes. And then the doctor hands the child to the mother. And the mother begins nursing the child. And you look at that picture and life is good. New little baby nursing, mom is happy, life is good. When you look at that scene, what you realize is that child is built for acceptance. That child's eyes can only focus about eight inches, which is about the length from mother's milk to mother's face. That child is built to receive the acceptance of the mother. Children uh, will continue to need the acceptance of mom and dad throughout their lives. You moms and dads know about this. You have a child who's in choir or sports or, or some other activity, and what does the child do in that activity? They're looking around, you know, oh, there they are, hey, how are you? You know, kids crave acceptance. Now, the thought experiment gets a little weird, okay? Just imagine for a moment that the child was born and the child says, no, mom, I'm really good, really good. Just give me my cell phone, leave me in the crib. I think I can figure this childhood thing out on my own. That would absolutely never happen because kids are built to crave acceptance. Now, the secret is that it continues with adulthood because we adults crave acceptance as well. As soon as we reach this place called adulthood, we start looking around and wondering who are the people who matter in this job or in this social situation or in my neighborhood. Who are the people that matter? And what can I do in order to gain the acceptance of those people who matter so that I can matter? We crave acceptance as adults with every bit the intensity that kids crave acceptance throughout their growing up years. And that's where the problem lies. Because it's very easy for us adults, especially adults who are followers of Christ, to look at the world and say, I want acceptance by the world, by the people in the world who matter, by the power brokers in the world who can give me the perks. I want their acceptance and I'm willing to sacrifice in order to get it. I'm willing to sacrifice and do whatever it takes 
in order to get it. We see a perfect illustration of this in the story we explore today. This is John 18.33 through John 19.16. And we see two groups who crave the acceptance of the world. Pontius Pilate, he craves the acceptance of the world, and the religious leaders, they crave the acceptance of the world. Now, these guys could not be any more different. They come from dramatically different cultures. They come from dramatically different backgrounds with different goals. And yet they have become obsessed with the same thing. How do I get the acceptance of the world? And to quote the, the famous Dr. Phil, how's that working out for him? How's that working out for these two groups, Pontius Pilate and the religious leaders? Well, as we'll, as we'll see, it does not work out too well. So what I want to do is look at the destructive downside of seeking the acceptance of the world. And the story begins with uh, Jesus in front of Pontius Pilate in a place called the Antonia Fortress. The Antonia Fortress is torn down today, but the, the remains of it can be seen when you travel around Jerusalem. It was a large, four-towered, fortified building that Herod the Great named after Mark Antony. And the fortress comes into the story in John 1833. So Pilate entered his headquarters. Now just for a moment, Pilate's headquarters was in Caesarea by the sea, but when he was in Jerusalem, his headquarters was at the Antonia Fortress. So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, are you the king of the Jews? Now, a bit of context to the story. Authors always have their strategies as they write their stories, whether it's C.S. Lewis or J.R.R. Tolkien or J.K. Rowling. Authors always have a plan when they tell a story. And John has a defining strategy in the story. What John is going to do is string together six short vignettes that fluctuate between indoor scenes and outdoor scenes. So there's the Antonia Fortress. Pilate's going to be in the fortress, and then he's going to be outside the fortress. He's going to go back in the fortress again, and then go outside the fortress. Then it's back in again, outside, inside, outside. Why does John do this? Because John wants to show that the physical back and forth of Pilate mirrors the internal double-mindedness of this man who's craving the acceptance of the world. That's John's strategy, and we're going to see how he carries this out really brilliantly. But something else is going on in the story. Pilate has six scenes. The Jewish leaders have three scenes. And in each scene, they express their growing rejection of Jesus. And by the end of the story, incredibly, both Pilate and the religious leaders want the same thing, the acceptance of the world. So let's see how, how, this, how this works out. We drill down into the details of the story. We start inside the Antonia Fortress. Pilate says to Jesus, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus says, do you say this of your own accord or did others say it to you about me? Pilate is really enraged. And you have to read this next statement with a tremendous amount of contempt. He says, am I a Jew? Your own nation and chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? He is filled with contempt toward Jesus. Jesus says, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting 
that I might not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not from this world. Now Pilate says, oh, you don't have to read this contemptuously. Oh, so you're a king. Jesus answered, you have well said that I'm a king. For this purpose I was born and for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate, again, with tremendous contempt says, ha, what is truth? This is an amazing story about cynicism. Verse 35, am I a Jew? Verse 37, so you're a king. Verse 38, what is truth? All expressions of contempt. One of the things you find with people who are looking for acceptance within the world system is a growing level of contempt. Why? Because when you get, or when you're trying to get acceptance by the world, there are people who oppose you. Other people want that acceptance too. And it's sort of a zero-sum game. Not everybody can't have acceptance by the world. Only certain people can. And with a zero-sum game, you gotta watch, you gotta watch your back. Pilate is the fifth Roman procurator since the death of Herod Archelaus. And he's always looking over his shoulder to see who else wants to rise up in the ranks just like he does. He didn't want to be in Jerusalem. He wants to be in Rome. That's where he wants to be. And he's looking over his shoulder, trying to see who's out to get him. When you seek the acceptance of the world, you can become a person who descends into contempt. But then Jesus delivers this astonishing truth. He says, yes, I'm a king. My kingdom is not of this world. What does Jesus mean by that? Well, I hope you remember what I've been saying about Jesus and Jesus' kingdom. Jesus' kingdom is coming for sure. But Jesus' kingdom is also now. Jesus' kingdom is his invisible spiritual presence that's all around you. I say this a lot of grace. In the space around you, God's presence exists. In him, we live and move and have our being. And so God's kingdom is all around us. God's kingdom presence was all around Jesus there. And Pilate can't help but sense that his kingdom presence is there because, and we'll, we'll see this a little bit more in, in, in a moment, Jesus says, everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate senses something, senses something, but he'll have none of it. Ha, what is truth? So now we go back outside. Go back outside the Antonia Fortress and back outside, Pilate was likely on the ledge above the columns that you see in the, on the screens. Can't be totally sure about that, but that's likely where he was. So Pilate leaves his headquarters, heads outside of the platform, overlooks the crowds below. Jesus follows, and Pilate presents Jesus to the crowds. I find no guilt in this man. Pilate wants to be rid of Jesus. He does not want to deal with him. Jesus is ruining his weekend. Jesus is ruining his serenity. He wants to be done with him. So according to custom, the Passover custom, Pilate offers to release a prisoner, hoping they're going to ask. Pilate hopes they'll ask for Jesus. Pilate says, I find no guilt in him, but you have a custom that I should release one man for you at the Passover. So 
do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? He hopes they will. And they cried again, no, not this man, but Barabbas. Now, Barabbas was a robber. Interesting word for robber that's used is the Greek word leistes, which means a political revolutionary, a political guerrilla. We would say it would be a terrorist. And what's ironic is the word Barabbas means the son of the father. So here's, here's the real son of the father, Jesus, the king of the Jews, being rejected so that the terrorist, the son of the father, can be released. Pilate is shocked by this. What's going on? So now it's back inside, back inside the Antonio Fortress. We've got to deal with this crazy turn of events. Back inside, there was a large courtyard. And um, these rough hands seized Jesus. They manhandled him into the center of the courtyard. And John 19, verse 1 says, they flog him. Pilate thinks, maybe if I beat this guy up, the Jewish leaders will feel sorry for him, and they'll release Jesus, and I can be done with this, with this problem. Well, there are three kinds of flogging in the ancient world. Mild, medium, and brutal. The flogging that he gets right now is the mild flogging. The brutal flogging is going to come later. Now, let, let me just tell you something. To me, any flogging would seem brutal. <laughs> and I'm sure if any of us received the flogging that Jesus did at this point in the center courtyard of the Antonio Fortress, it would have been brutal. So they, they beat Jesus up in the middle of the courtyard. They put a, on him a crown of thorns. These Roman soldiers would have take, taken gloved hands and shoved the thorns down onto his scalp and put a purple robe on Jesus. And they begin to mock him. All that took place in the Antonio Fortress in the courtyard. Now it's back outside. Back outside the Antonio Fortress, Pilate appears, and the crowds quiet down, and he says, I'm bringing Jesus back out, and I want you to know that I find no guilt in him. This is the second time that he, is, he has said this. And then Jesus steps into view, and the crowds, I'm sure, gasp. I envision one eye beaten shut. Red stains have seeped through his clothing. Blood oozes from his scalp where the thorns have pierced the skin. But I want to tell you, the presence of God is all over this event. Jesus, uh, Pilate says, behold the man. Now, I, I will tell you that, that Pilate is speaking both politically and prophetically at this point. Behold the man. Like, look, he's beaten up. Can't be the king of the Jews. Guy's just a man. Behold the man. And yet, in a way, Pilate is speaking prophetically, even though he doesn't know it, because Jesus is the incarnate son of man. He's the perfect man. He's the God man. He's the man who's going to be the substitute on the cross for our sins. Of course, people don't pick that up quite yet, but behold the man. The crowds erupt in fury. Crucify him. Crucify him. And they keep shouting it. Now, it's interesting that this, this took place in Jerusalem, and there, there's a place in Jerusalem where they think this happened. This arch is called the Echo Home, uh, Homo Arch. 
And it was at this place, they think, where Pilate made this declaration. Well, the crowds are still in a fury. They still yell, crucify him, crucify him. You know, sometimes you'll see these protests and people will begin to shout something. And the very act of shouting riles them up even more. And now they're more enraged and frenzied by the things that they're shouting. That's what's happening now. Crucify him. He must be killed because he made himself out, they say, to be the son of God. Uh-oh, son of God. That fills Pilate with a, a tremendous sense of dread because Pilate's a good Roman. And Romans believed that you had to assuage the gods. You had to placate the gods. You had to make sure the gods were pleased with you. And Pilate wants more than anything else to rise up in the ranks and gain the acceptance by the world. And so if this is a God who's being offended, he wants to be very careful about that. And so they go back inside the Antonio Fortress for another conversation. Where are you from? Pilate asks. Jesus is silent. <clears throat> Pilate has never seen anybody do this kind of thing. I mean, everybody cow kowtows to Pilate. Pilate says, do you know that I have the authority to release you or crucify you? You know that? Everybody knew what crucifixion meant. It was brutally painful. Jesus manifests total control. He says, you would have no authority over me unless it had been given to you. Pilate is now even more afraid. There's something unusual about this guy. So they go back outside the Antonio Fortress. He presents Jesus for the third time. Again, he's desperately trying to release him, but the crowds now manipulate him, and he now manipulates the crowds. They say, um, if you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. When Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat him down on the judgment seat at a place called the Stone Pavement in Aramaic Gabbatha. Now, remember what I've said in the past about judgment seats. Judgment seats are places where Roman officials make official political pronouncements that sometimes have the force of law. Pilate is done going back and forth. Pilate is in the process of making his decision. So he's sitting on his judgment seat, and he says to the Jews, behold your king. Now he's messing with him. Now he's messing with him. Now he's getting him even more riled up. Behold your king. He knows what they're going to do now. Away with him, the crowds cried out, Crucify him. Pilate, still messing with him, still manipulating them, says, whoa, shall I crucify your king? Now, at this point, we got to stop because no one saw this next phrase coming. No one saw this next pronouncement. Not in a million years could people have believed that these guys the chief priests, the religious leaders would say what they're about to say. They say, we have no king but Caesar. Whoa, that's incredible. Because ever since the days of the Babylonian captivity, the people of Israel have hoped for a new king, a king like David, a king like Solomon, a king like Josiah. They've hoped for a new king, a king who would overthrow 
the governments of Greece or Rome or whomever was over them. They hoped for a new king who would rule in righteousness and in godliness. They wanted to be a kingdom ruled by a godly man. That was, that was the hope of Israel. And now these chief priests are saying, we have no king but Caesar. They've capitulated. What they want more than anything else is acceptance by the world. So let's, let's pull back from the story just for a second. And I want you to think about some interesting things that have happened here. John, the gospel writer, has embedded the good news into this story. First, Jesus declared he was king. We're talking king of the universe. Anybody reading this story would realize there's something unique about Jesus as king as he acts confidently before Pontius Pilate. Secondly, the Jews correctly understood that Jesus claimed to be the son of God. And then Pilate ironically declared that Jesus was the man, like the perfect man, the God man, the incarnate son of man. And fourth, we see that Jesus claims to be the witness to the truth, truth with a capital T. He is the deliverer of news that is transformative. So you've got five truths embedded in the story. He's king, he's God, he's the ideal man, he's the bringer of the good news, he's the one who suffers to bring the truth. Both these groups had information that they could have used to receive the Messiah and they didn't do it. They didn't do it. They had that information that could have been transformative, but they, they didn't do it. Why didn't they do it? Because both groups have a God, and that God is acceptance by the world. Not only are they unified in the rejection, but they both fully embrace the value of the world system. We have no king but Caesar. So he asked the question, how did that work out for him? I'm going to channel my inner Dr. Phil. How's that working out for you? How's it working out for Pontius Pilate? How's it working out for the religious leaders? Well, let's think about that for a second. Did they get the acceptance they longed for? Pilate commits suicide five years later under the reign of Caligula. The guy who was craving acceptance. The guy who was longing for significance. This guy commits suicide five years later under the reign of Caligula. And the religious leaders see Jerusalem utterly destroyed 35 years later in 70 AD. In 70 AD, the Jews have an uprising Roman emperor comes down, the Roman garrisons encamp on the Mount of Olives. The Roman garrisons besiege the city. The people begin to starve. They overthrow the city. They destroy the entire Temple Mount, and they destroy a good part of Jerusalem. Did they get the thing that they were craving for? No, they did not. They did not. You know, the thing about, about craving acceptance is it's a little bit like trying to find the end of the rainbow not going to find it. It's a little bit like getting sand in your hands and trying to grasp onto the sand and seeing the sand flow through your fingers. It's a little bit like trying to harness a puff of smoke. You can't get it. It seems like you can. It seems like other people have gotten the acceptance of the world. It seems like other people have, have made it work for them. So it seems like I should be able to do that as well. And it can't be done, especially if you're a follower of Christ. It can't be done because God loves you too much to allow you to go down that road too far. And that brings us to the main idea of this story. 
In this story, John is really forcing us to confront our craving as, as a believer uh, for acceptance of, of, of the world. And here's the main idea in a nutshell. When acceptance by the world becomes your God, you'll reject Jesus and miss out on his rule in your life. If you uh, are seeking acceptance by the world, it can become like a God, and you will reject Jesus' work, and you will miss out on his, on his rule. Or you can put it another way and say the craving the acceptance of the world is the enemy of Jesus' rule in your life. And you can do this in two ways. You can do this as a non-believer. Obviously, Pilate and the, and the religious priests were non-believers, and uh, they were all seeking acceptance, Pilate, by the Roman authorities. The Jewish leaders were actually seeking acceptance, too, by the Roman authorities, but different Roman authorities, so that they could be wealthy because the chief priests were the billionaires of the ancient world. They had rigged this temple system so that they could be the the billionaires of the ancient world, the elite people of the ancient world. They'd rig that system. You can do this as a non-believer. You can do this as a believer in Christ. You can have Jesus as your Savior. You can say, I'm, I'm, I'm a Christian. I've received Christ. But like Pilate, you can be really double-minded, wanting the acceptance of the world, being attracted to what Jesus might provide, wanting the acceptance of the world, being attracted to what Jesus might provide, and living in a state of double-mindedness. That's what Pilate did. You can do that as a believer in Christ. I've known pastors who've told me they preached the word on Sundays, but they were approval addicts most of the time. And they were seeking for the approval of all sorts of different people. I've talked to people in industry who followers of Christ at home, followers of Christ on Sundays, but approval addicts during the week, living a split life, living a dichotomized existence with Christ. It is very easy to do. You can do it in both those ways, as non-believer and as a believer. But it leads to a bad result because when push comes to shove, you will always veer off the path toward the world. That's what Jesus said. You know, you, you can't serve God and mammon at the same time. Either you're going to love one and hate the other or hold the one or despise the other. You can't do it. Because if you love money... If you love the acceptance of the world, you will choose the acceptance of the world and you will resist and reject God because the world is so tangible and immediate. Notice that there's a minor theme in the story. And the minor theme is that when we are in the habit of craving acceptance, we experience increased anxiety. Do you notice the anxiety within Pontius Pilate? Pilate hears about Jesus being God and he flips out. Why? Because oh, I gotta placate the gods. That's how I get ahead in the Roman world. I gotta, I gotta make sure that this guy that I'm about to sense to death is not somebody who's gonna destroy me like, like after, he, after he dies. There's tremendous fear. And um, I just find it interesting that Pilate's anxiety descends ever more into a place of fear. When you crave the acceptance of the world, your life turns toward anxiety. We saw a really interesting example of this in Tom Brady. Tom Brady. The article came out, uh, here's the kind of crazy ritual from Tom Brady's good witch wife 
has him doing before games. I just was fascinated by this, by this article, and I checked it out to find if other people were saying the, saying the same thing. But um, shortly after the win, Brady told reporters that his success was derived from the spiritual work that his wife did, witchcraft. Brady said, I have these little special stones. They're healing stones or protection stones. She has me wear a necklace and I take these special drops that she makes. I have all these mantras that she's prepared for me and I say them. And then his wife makes a little altar, a little religious altar in the locker room and in the home. And uh, she says, I'm willing him to win. And right after the win, she said to her husband, see, I did my work, you did your work, and you got the win. And Brady, Tom Brady calls her, my wife who is the good witch. That's a quote. You know, superstition is anxiety. It's fear. It's fear that if I do the wrong thing, something bad's going to happen to me or, or something not good. Or maybe the good won't come to me. It's so easy when you crave the acceptance of the world to make yourself an enemy of Jesus' rule in your life. So with that in mind, let's look at some takeaways. Here, here are some ways we can confront our craving for acceptance by the world. The first way is just to admit your love affair with the world. Just admit it. Admit it. James asks us to do this in James 4.4. He says, you adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity toward God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. That verse is the exact lesson that flows from John 18.33 through John 19.16. And I think it's really helpful for us to do what James says. Just, okay, at some level, I have a love for the world, and I need to identify it. I want to remind you of what, what the world is. The world is that system of culture, habit, philosophy, or way of life that allows you to find significance apart from God. Whatever you do in your life to help you find significance apart from God, that's, that's the world. Uh, the world is going to be very different from place to place and time to time. I can tell you that the world system in London, England, is different than the world system in Seattle, Washington, and it's different from the world system in Bartlesville, Oklahoma. But the same root is there, and the root is I can use the world system to find significance apart from God. The world system differs from generation to generation. The world system in 1920 is different than the world system in the 1960s. And the world system in the 1960s is different than the world system in 2019. We're in 2019. Yeah. So the world system may differ from time to time and place to place, but it has one central idea, and the central idea is I'm going to find significance apart from God. And what we find with the world system is that it's energized by the evil one. Here's Ephesians 2, 1 through 3. You were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of the world. There's that world system. We're walking according to the course of the world, getting significance from the world, following the prince of the power of the air. And what that says is that Satan, the evil one, energizes our love for the world so that our flesh kicks in, and we say, I got to have that. I got to have that. That's what he continues to say. The spirit is now at work in the sons of disobedience, 
among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh. So the world is energized by the evil one, and the evil one loves to energize your flesh and to lure you in so that you will crave the acceptance of the world. <clears throat> so um, don't deny your current love affair with the world. Figure out what it is, and when you do figure out what it is, I think it's really helpful to think about the first step of recovery. First step of recovery stated from the acceptance standpoint is this. I just admitted that I was powerless over my desire for the acceptance by the world and that my thought life had become unmanageable. And a lot of people could easily take that step even today and say, you know what? I'm powerless over my desire for acceptance by the world. It is so strong in me, I'm powerless over it. My thought life with regard to acceptance has become unmanageable. Well, that's the first step of recovery. And I think it's helpful just to begin there because we all, to a certain extent, crave the acceptance by the world. Here's a second takeaway. Second takeaway is to define what your specific lure might be. I don't know what yours is, but I can give you some common examples. Some seek acceptance through social media dominance. I heard about a psychologist who treats people who've got social media addiction. And it's easy to look at that, think about that and go, like roll your eyes and go, that's not a thing. He says, no, it is really a thing. It is really a thing. And I'm dealing with people who are struggling with this. That's how they feel they can find acceptance by the world is through social media dominance. I won't ask for a show of hands, but I mean, how many of you have, have posted something and thought, hot dog, I got 200 likes. That's awesome. And felt really good about yourself for the rest of the day. Uh, others seek acceptance through relationships with people who are socially prominent. Um, there is a socially prominent group in every city on the face of the earth. D.C., Seattle, London, Omaha, Bartlesville, Dewey, Nevada, doesn't matter where you are. And there are people who seek acceptance because they, they say, I, I want to know who the socially prominent people are, and I am going to get, get on the inside with them. I'm going to network with them. There is a, I think there's a godly networking that is a godly way of doing business. I don't want to, I don't want to down, downplay that at all, but there's also a way of networking that says, I'll be significant when I enter into this group. Other, others uh, that I have known, um, like parents of adult children, they will crave acceptance from their kids. This is a dangerous one. Sometimes parents feel guilty because their adult children are making choices they don't like. So you know what they do? They say, I'm going to sacrifice my belief system and I'm going to correspond my belief system to what my children's belief system is because I want their acceptance and I will feel bad if I don't get it. Let me tell you, that is a huge lure for people who are my age who have adult children. Singles want acceptance in dating relationships, and sometimes they have to sacrifice boundaries with their body 
in order to get it. So just define what your lure is. What is your lure? And bring that lure to God. And, and I, I'd say, be radical about, about what that lure is. Jesus says, if your eye causes you to stumble, pluck it out and throw it away. He's not telling us to do something literally. Otherwise, we would not, any of us in this room, be seeing right now. This is a, a metaphorical command. And the command is, deal with your lure radically. Deal with it radically. And then um, the final takeaway is take a fresh look at what Jesus offers you now as your king. What, is, what does he offer you now as your king? Well, let's think about this. Um, he offers you a growing sense of his presence. He offers you answered prayer, peace in the storms of life, awareness of personal mission, flourishing in your strengths, being gripped by the future that you have in heaven, expanding your encounters with spiritual power, entering God's kingdom presence in community, and a whole lot more than that. But because Jesus is the king, you can encounter his kingdom rule now. Remember Colossians 1.13, he transferred us from the domain of darkness, that's where we were, into the kingdom of his beloved son. The kingdom of his beloved son is a kingdom culture of love and community and empowerment and grace and joy and hope and confidence. It's all that. And one of the ways that we, we deal with the acceptance of the world is say, okay, I'm going to transfer my love of acceptance of this world and I'm going to look at Jesus' kingdom and I want to say, I want to live in your kingdom now. I want to live in your kingdom. That's why it's important for you to pray the Lord's Prayer every day. Many of you have memorized the Lord's Prayer. You could easily do this. When you pray, your kingdom come, what you're saying is, God, I'm praying right now that you would break into my life and your kingdom rule would be manifest in my life, in my life right now, this very moment. It's a great prayer to pray. Josephus recounts an incident in which Pilate spent money from the temple treasury to build an aqueduct. How many times have you heard of somebody saying, I'm going to take this money over here, I'm going to take that money and I'm going to bring it over here, and I'm going to, and I'm going to make something. Pilate did that. Took money from the temple treasury, um, and he went to build an aqueduct. Pilate hid soldiers in the crowds, and he addressed them about this. And when the Jews protested, he gave signal for his soldiers to randomly attack and kill and beat people in an attempt to silence them. Does that sound like a happy man? Does that sound like a man who's growing in joy and love and abundance of life? No. That's what acceptance, craving acceptance by the world does to you. It poisons your internal world so that all you can think about is what you want. Look, the best way to, best antidote to sinking the acceptance of the world is Matthew 6, Seek first the kingdom of God and its righteousness and all these things will be added unto you.